0: Hello and welcome to a fresh episode of Terminal Talk. I'm Jeff. And I'm Frank. And this is episode three of Terminal Talk. Three. Three. How do you figure three? We had number zero. Yes. And then we had Anthony Sophia, episode Uh, one. Right. And Jeff Fry was two and two and a half.
1: No, that's two and three.
0: It's it's, it's one episode. It's just split in half.
1: No, it's two different episodes.
0: Um... Well, uh, how the user is going to see it is how I upload it, because I get to do all the not fun stuff, and I could call it uh, episode uh, two, Point Ham Sandwich, if I really wanted to.
1: Okay, so this is...
0: Episode three. Three. Three.
1: We have episode three today, mm-hmm. um, depending on how you do your math, and our That's
0: guest... Right I tend to put three after two.
1: I know, and you got something in between. two and three. Yeah,
0: Jeff Fry's two, Mark doesn't three
1: and our guest today is mark nelson a security guru
0: yeah the, the funny thing about mark nelson is uh and he'll be listening to this i'm, I'm picturing him listening to us talking about him right now going oh no they're going to say something mean you no know, mark nelson said uh you guys really you know i, I don't know what i'm going to talk about i have i have two things i want to cover and one of them is to make fun of frank and after that I, I don't i don't know what to do and uh he was just really worried he wouldn't have anything to talk about and uh he came in and delivered a master class about security on the mainframe. It was really cool.
1: Yeah, I I knew that once he got started that everything he said was gonna be gold and, and it worked out that way.
0: Once he got going, and you see this with a lot of guests, once he got going is he he just kept going, he kept bringing things up out of left field, and it was just it was great to hear. And I learned a whole lot. People should be able to put they listen to this podcast on their resume. And, and even get a badge for it. I'm going to say they should be able to get a badge for listening to this podcast.
1: Well, I'm hoping that uh, we can have him back because everything that he said, uh, there's there's 20 minutes to a half hour of detail that would be great to hear.
0: Yeah, it would be nice just to deep dive on some of this stuff.
1: Yeah, but we're not going to do that today. No. So on episode four. Three. We have Mark Nelson.
0: Mark Nelson on Terminal Talk, episode three.
1: That your reader to receive. You're being transmitted. Another episode of Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. Welcome to Terminal Talk. Our conversation today is with Mark Nelson, a grand poobah of security <laughs> on Rack F, right?
2: That's
0: it. All right. Thank you for coming by. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> You made a distinction when we, when we were asking you if you come on. I said, hey, you can talk about Rackf this, RACF that. And you said, I'm not RACF, I'm security. There's a difference.
2: There is. I think when you're looking at Z, uh, you, you should be looking at a holistic view of security. And that's just not the Rackf piece. But that's all the other elements, all the resource managers, as we would say, that make requests of Rackf. It's also the auditing piece, et cetera, et cetera.
1: For those of us that don't know, what is Rackf?
2: You made fun of the word facility in your recent (laughs) podcast, and yes, we are the resource, access, control, wait for it, facility, (laughs) or RACF.
1: And, And doesn't it rely on another facility?
2: Well, there is another facility that is sort of the front end to our facility, and that is the system authorization facility, or SAF.
1: And so you really kind of manage SAF commands, right?
2: From a RACF perspective. So we should talk a little bit about what, what SAF is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When it, it fundamentally, security is a very, very simple thing to do. It's answering a question. Does this person have access to this thing? That's it. Hmm. Right. But in order to do that, you have to have some way of identifying that person. That's the problem of identification. Making sure they are who they say they are. That's the issue of authentication, password, password, phrases, digital certificates, pass tickets, Kerberos, credentials, whatever it might be. Right, then taking that information and looking to a place for, to answer that question and then, of course, to log the results because you do want to record, hey, who approved this transaction or who opened this particular file or data set or whatever it might be. So the place where those resource managers make that question is the system authorization facility or SAF. Underneath that is the external security manager of which RACF is one. There are others. We shan't talk about them. <laughs> but as
1: a security guy – um, what do you say to people who say, you know, what makes security on the mainframe so different?
2: I think part of what makes it different on the mainframe is – I, I did say that we're simply the issue of answering a question. There actually are other aspects of security. So there's a classic model called the CIA model. It has nothing to do with people in Fort Bede, Maryland. It has to do with confidentiality, integrity, and availability availability is a key part of the security question in that model and in fact should be a it's definitely one of the top concerns of our clients because a system that is unavailable one might say is secure, but right.
0: it's fundamentally useless. So you wouldn't put the letters in that order if you <laughs>
2: – not necessarily. Well, see, the reason why I wouldn't put them in that order is I think a lot of – going off on a tangent, yeah. a lot of clients I think focus too much on the availability issue. And not too much, but in the sense that if people have incentives in their performance plan, things they're measured on, service level agreements, they're always on the issue of availability. Right. So if someone is going to make that very human condition uh, question or answer the question in a very human way, what should I worry about today? Availability is going to be on the top of the list. Security might not be, specifically confidentiality and integrity. So we got on that topic because what is there interesting and different about System Z? Uh, System Z, we, we've been doing uh, cryptography on System Z for many, many years. I think a lot of people don't realize this thing called DES, the data encryption standard. We invented that. <laughs> Right. We invented that to solve a business problem. A bank was trying to in, uh, create the first ATM somewhere in the late 60s, early 70s, and we created an algorithm to protect information as it went from the bank to the ATM. Interestingly, it was uh, it was an algorithm called Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've always liked to joke I, th- there are not devil worshippers inside of IBM. Right? <laughs> there are not. Uh, but I did talk to somebody who had worked on the team, and uh, the person who created this algorithm uh, had said he, he had created something that was devilishly difficult to decipher. So this thing called Lucifer ended up becoming standardized as the data encryption algorithm and then the data encryption standard. So we've been doing it. We've had hardware since the mid-'70s that have implemented – in a a manner where you would load the key into this protected hardware box. The key never left the box. The triple DES, we started putting that as part of the processors a long, long time ago. Priced feature, it's been a standard feature for a very, very long time. Anthony yesterday referred to something called the uh, CPACF, Central Processor Assist for Cryptographic Functions. Mm. When I first heard about that, I thought, yeah, it's an instruction. What do I care? It's not an instruction. It's an actual bunch of on silicon uh it's a it's another processor sitting next to that central processor very low latency to get to data very very fast and we've been leveraging that more and more and more and with something that's coming out very soon it's been some of our announcement materials called pervasive encryption mm-hmm. we'll be using it even more i talk too
0: much i'm sorry no no, no. awesome <laughs> Actually tangents are good that's okay. awesome
1: yeah that was awesome
0: yeah we're done. I'm just trying to figure out where to go from there.
1: <laughs> well, so, so, so you, you, you mentioned availability and, and you hit one of my hot buttons, right? Nobody cares about security until they have to, right?
2: That's absolutely true. Right? Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Many people. Most people. <laughs> many people.
1: Certainly, <laughs> many. most of the businesses that I've worked with, it, it it's ho hum until it isn't. And then it's so you know, pa- so on fire.
2: part of our job is to go out and make these, these, the sum into the many. I think we've done a disservice because many people in this industry, you'll see it. When a security guy comes in, the first thing they do is they put up the chart whose sole purpose is to scare the hell out of you. <laughs> <laughs> and you see this so much. I think people get a little immune to it. I think they actually get a little immune to it. And what I like to focus on is what are the risks that you have now that you can address now with the things you already have? Right. One of the issues we've seen is that uh, that I've seen is that clients don't configure their systems in the most secure manner, and part of the reason they don't do that is fear. Oh, I don't I don't want to change that setting because it might break something,
0: and that would hurt the availability, the thing that I'm really measured on. Right. I, I think it's it's probably safe to say, at least it has been my experience, is if you're concerned with with the availability or the production side of things, you're, you're writing code, you're testing things. Um, you might have like a personal library of 12 racf commands <laughs> and when something doesn't work because you get a racf message you're going to start kind of cycling through them and saying does it work now does it work now if somebody is you know they, they, they know they need to be concerned about security they need to have some sort of understanding where should they get started in in kind of understanding their space and what they what they need to be uh, how they can interact with uh, with racf or security in general that
2: that's an outstanding
0: question for Thank which you. I wish I had an outstanding answer. <laughs> uh, most of the
2: uh, publications that one might find uh, are are really geared toward very specific roles. You're writing an application. There's a rack route reference manual. You're a security administrator. There is a 900-page security administrator's guide. If you're an auditor, we've got something for that. We do have a general user's guide. All great places. But if you're somebody who's a developer, the example you just used, what, inver- what often happens, can't say invariably, what often happens is you issue some set of commands until your application works. Right. And at that point, you're like, yes! Right. Now, you may have done something in that environment. Perhaps you were running your application or you require your application run with an extraordinary set of privileges that it really doesn't need. Uh, how do you catch those kinds of things? And part of it is the overall understanding of some basic security principles a principle like the principle of least privilege, right if you require a high level of privilege to do something simple, you need to think about how that application or how that environment is implemented huh. uh, you need to, so that that's probably the, the the one that's most important to this this particular discussion
1: it kind of we come back to to a question that I always hear um, why does it have to be why does it have to be so hard i mean you, you talked about you know, hundreds and hundreds of manual pages just to do, you well, know, is is this person allowed to do this? Why has it got to be so complex?
2: Yeah, I'm a good guy. Why can't you just let me do everything I want to? And, you know. Well, you, you say you're a good guy, but I know you. <laughs> <laughs> And let's not talk about Frank at this point. (laughs) So so having said that, uh, part of the reason is that fundamentally it really is the question of does this person have access to this resource? But the identification authentication piece, that means you have to have a method of validating those credentials. So that means you have to get into the whole issue of password, password phrase management or or step up to something a little more modern like multi-factor authentication Um, or or any of those other mechanisms I I mentioned earlier. So that takes care of the first part of the equation. Next part of the equation is the how do I ensure that you are actually allowed to get to those things. Now, we'd like to be able to answer that question in the fastest possible way. So part of the complexity that you get with RACF is is some tooling that allows you to make that answer, uh, to determine that in a faster manner. So you can tell us, Hey, take this security information and put it in a data space so we don't have to do I.O. to get to it. Mm-hmm. Or I could go out and perhaps um, set up a predefined list of things. Right? If, for example, in, in a ZOS environment, a lot of folks will have data sets beginning with Sys1. Right? Sorry, I'm going to get geeky here for a moment. Sys1.a, Sys1.a1, A2, whatever they might be that they want to have everyone have access to. We have a mechanism to do that. It's called the global access table. Well, every time you introduce one of these mechanisms that makes things faster or has a little swizzle on it, you now have something else for people to consider. Right? And usually the consideration comes in when something doesn't work the way they expected. Hey, I didn't get access to something, so instead of just looking in one RACF profile, as we would call it, you may have to look at some other things. Right. Or if somebody did get access, why did they get access? Now you're looking at a slew of other things. But that additional complexity right, was really added as a result of the desire to be able to answer that question, does this person have access to that resource, as fast as we possibly could.
0: But it starts from the model of I'm going to stop you by default and you have to make exceptions. You have to give me a good reason why you need to get to this resource to be able to do this thing.
2: So one of the, uh, one of the things to consider, and most clients don't have to worry about this now because they, they're mature. They've, they've been in existence for a long time. But if you take a ZOS environment out of the box, you have to be able to get that first image up and running. So that first set of instances, there will be precisely one user ID defined, mm-hmm. right? And as you allocate things, that user ID will have access to pretty much everything, right? Uh, you do need to do some things to start t- closing down that system. Fortunately, it's a very small set of commands. It's very, very easy to do. Right? But I can't say that you get you know, out of the box, if you will, that it's a well-controlled system. What you have is some wonderful Play-Doh, lots of different colors of Play-Doh. And your job is to sit there and shape that Play-Doh into the, the building or the, the structure that you want to create that matches what your business requirements are. And the good news is there's some additional tooling. IBM has products like Z-Secure. There are some vendors who have equivalent products that will look at your system and say, all right, let's take a look at the overall configuration. Is it reasonable or do you have some gaping exposures in it? And I definitely encourage clients to, to do things like that because even the best intentioned of clients will make mistakes.
0: And not probably not even just after the first install, but periodically because Oh, absolutely. Change.
2: And by periodically, daily might be too often. Okay, that's that, <laughs> that counts. Right. And and uh, I so years ago we did something called the IBM Health Checker for ZOS. Yeah. Uh, we did this uh, ZOS 1.7, I think it was, a long time ago. One of the first checks we had in there was a basic RACF configuration check. It looked at something called APF libraries, authorized program facility libraries. Where if you have the ability to change something in there or put something in there, you had an extraordinary amount of power and this this check which out of the box just ran uh, and told you if you had one of these things, a lot of clients found that they had these data sets of this type uh, that everyone could update. And that's a problem. And when I talk to clients, a lot of times it was small, little outside of the mainstream. Even clients who had a really good change control process had these things slip in. So yes, that it is. Imp- you do need to run it periodically and uh, daily,
0: uh, daily, or more, more frequently.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are products that actually do continuous monitoring. So. Donut, Frank? <laughs> I'm a donut. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm a donut. Donuts. <laughs>
0: So one of the, one of the things I, I thought was kind of interesting about the way that RACF works with the operating system is that I, I know that there are other alternatives to RACF. Um, I'm just wondering, it, it seems like is it, is it a, com- a component? Is it part of the operating system or does it plug in like a feature and, and how does that work and why are we keeping it separate like that? Excellent question and there's a little bit of history here. Uh, When the operating
2: system first shipped, there were some what I'll call relatively primitive sets of controls for identification, authentication, and access controls. This was things like the TSO UADS user attribute data set, for example. uh, Other resource managers had their own user registries, had their own methods of authentication, Internally within IBM, we had a group of folks in uh, IBM Research who decided this was not sufficient and they created their own access control mechanism, their own identification authentication mechanism. Wasn't called RACF at the time, something called Installation Management Facility. And they were using this to to, uh, control access and control the operating environment at our research centers where some of our most valuable data was. There was an initiative in IBM to create a security product and as that initiative was going on, uh, the marketplace started saying, we really want to have a better set of security controls on the MVT and MVS platforms. This culminated with a presentation or a set of discussions at SHARE, I believe the year was 1974, where folks got up and talked about their approaches. Folks over at IBM talked about this thing called IMF. A gentleman named Barry Schrager talked about the product, which is called ACF2, and somebody got up to talk about the product called, about, now called Top Secret, may have been called Top Secret at the time. And the idea was to figure out what was the right approach, what was the right set of requirements. So you had three sets of folks coming up with three, two-and-a-half maybe, different approaches to solving <laughs> the problem. Uh, RACF, quite frankly, wasn't the first one there. And, and in, in the MVS, MVT, ZOS, in, in the IBM mainframe environment, we support our clients pretty much no matter what software they are running. Right? You, we love it when you run IBM software. Right? It's, it's obviously the, the superior Way to be running. <laughs> Clearly. Um, said that just because you have to me say, say that, that, I right? have to say yeah. that. Right? But the the other products are in use and we are not in the business of telling clients that no, I'm sorry, you, you can't use the thing that you already like. So SAF was one of the ways that we isolated the people asking the question from the people who are answering the question.
1: So uh, it sounds like SAF does an awful lot of this and F is kind of the user interface to it.
2: Oh, that's not quite Frank. <laughs> yes, it is. I just said it. Yeah.
0: So it is Frank. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, is Frank. Frank. <laughs> frank doesn't do very much. Right?
2: <laughs> well, then the analogy is perfect. Okay. <laughs> Actually, the analogy really is perfect <laughs> now that I think about it. Uh, SAF really doesn't do that much in the sense that it's it's more of a router than something else. It gets a request in and it passes it off to the external security manager. In our case, F, and, and, and that's the, the portal through which the response is given back. But there are times when there isn't an external security manager. Very early on during the system initialization, during the initial program load or IPL, there is no security manager, but there is SAF, and SAF will return some default answers, which are yes, pretty much, because this is during initialization, and if you don't have a security manager, it's not there to say yes or no, so the answer is yes up until the point of time that the security manager is initialized, and then you can start getting real decisions. But SAF really is is pretty much a router. So just like you know the way Frank delegates work,
0: you
1: can cut this, that out. This, no, this this uh, podcast was a lot more fun before. It really
0: lets you kind of see. You know, it's good to let you know what people think of you. Yeah, it, it hurts though. It's good to know where you stand. I,
1: I'm a little bit smaller now. No, know. no, that's not true.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I will be bigger because I'm not going to eat something to eat away the pain.
2: As you might uh, have guessed, uh, Frank and I have known each other for a few years. I, I can tell. <laughs> I can tell. And there's no person I like more than IBM. Me, me too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I cut that part out. Yeah.
0: Um. So not too long ago, Frank, uh, Frank and I were at a client site. We were actually there with uh, one of your friends, Crypto Queen uh, Isha Powers. Shout out to the podcast listeners. Yay! Yay! Yay. Uh, we were we were there talking about uh, two factor authentication and PIV and CAT cards. Uh, this is all you know fairly new stuff i 'm curious as to what types of uh, new requirements customers have uh, what, what types of new stuff is being driven uh, into what customers are doing with security on the platform so multi factor authentication
2: is probably one of the most important things clients should be looking at now. They need to be looking at it for a couple of reasons. first is it provides some very very good defenses against some attacks that they, uh, they might be subject to. And the second reason is there are some regulatory environments that are insisting on the use of multi-factor authentication. And we do like to say multi-factor authentication yeah, because uh, it, it it can be more than two, quite frankly.
0: Is and that, is that the only distinction, that it is more than two? Yes. Okay. At least in my mind, that's all it is. Uh, is you
2: know, hence, hence the multi versus two kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. You <laughs> it's do. a good question. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't. – uh, Say It's a nice question.
1: It wasn't a good question. It was a good question.
2: So, so think about it. We should talk about what the factors are. The factors are basically something you know like a password, password phrase, something you have like a key fob token or something like that or something that's intrinsic about you. Right? So your fingerprint, your retina scan, some DNA analysis, whatever it might be. And The idea is that you have more than one of these. Now, traditionally, we have been focusing on user ID, password, password phrases, Kerberos credentials, things like that. Um, can't those things be spoofed? Well, the answer is yeah, mm-hmm. right? Keyboard log, uh, keystroke loggers, keyboard loggers, those things do exist. Yes, you have to get somebody who can find an endpoint device and install those on, but things like that could happen, right? Wouldn't it be nice if you could marry that thing you know with something as intrinsic about you, right? Like a thumbprint, right? Or something that you have, like a cell phone or like a, a key token of some type, and that's the whole idea of multi-factor authentication. Uh, buzzword alert: Defense in depth. Assume that someone has compromised your password. And, and, and oh, by the way, it doesn't have to be that somebody installed a keystroke logger, right? It could be something like they're basically threatening you or your family. Give me your password, or else something bad is going to happen.
1: Well, you're just really bad at creating passwords or, like one, two, oh, three, four, five. Mm-hmm.
2: Don't go there. Ooh. Yes. Uh, what's the most
1: common password? Password. Oh, wait, but I put a zero in for the O, so
0: I'm safe. Hey guys, I'm going to hit pause and just change my password. Is that- <laughs>
2: yes, but you might want to do so when we're not looking over your shoulder.
1: <laughs> not like we're nefarious or anything. No,
2: not at all. We- <laughs> you should. Everyone should be a little bit paranoid. So that's the concept of multi-factor authentication is to put something else in the stream. So even if they have one piece of information, password, password, phrase, they can't use that to become you, to claim that they are you and Mm -hmm. some of the things we have with multi-factor authentication is support for a a key fobby kind of thing, an RSA token. Uh, There's also something called a touch token where you can use a cell phone, thumbprint uh, reader. So there are some options available.
0: And is the is a, is a difference of a token and a password – a token is something that's like kind of short-lived or, or what's the distinction there?
2: Uh, so, so in general, that token is producing a value that changes on a, on a very frequent basis, every 10 seconds, every minute, whatever it might be. Right, so the token itself has a shared secret basically uh, and it's using that to generate a value that you will then input as part of your credentialing process. Okay.
1: So all this stuff sounds new and modern and cool. Isn't it hard for a system that's been around for, what, 11 billion years <laughs> to uh, suddenly do all this new new tech stuff?
2: I think that's one of the most impressive things about the system that evolved from System 360. That date of April 7th, 1964 is a date that everyone at IBM should celebrate and honor because it really was the birth of a new generation of processing and it brought a couple of things too. Uh, one of the things it brought was the concept of the architecture being isolated from the actual implementation. So there's a consistency in the architecture. It's an extensible architecture. So back in those days, you might have had a very small amount of storage, 16 meg. Now we're talking about gigs and gigs of storage, all with a single extensible architecture. There, there. And let's not let's be clear about it, there are always bumps in the road when you're talking about 55 years, 54 years of of, of extensibility, but fundamentally the initial architecture was sound, and that is something that we should be very grateful for. The same thing is true of security, right? The the concept of a resource managers calling one central place to get an answer for security. That one central place responsible for identification, authentication, and for logging is an architectural decision that allows extensions such as multi-factor authentication Potentially without significant application or resource manager impact. I'm not saying it's always without impact, but having one place to ask one set of questions really eases the implementation.
1: Would that be easier if the user interfaces were more modern? I mean, 3270 is is really kind of clunky to do uh, forward-thinking password. You know, multi-factor authentication, that kind of thing.
2: Good question. And, and I'm the wrong person in some ways to ask that question because I'm not even a 3270 kind of guy. I'm a command
1: line kind of guy,
2: right? Uh, that's a, why you
1: have all that silver
2: hair. That's it. <laughs> you can call me the silver fox. No one <laughs> else ever will. <laughs> yeah, don't, uh, but,
1: don't expect us to either.
2: But uh, there there are uh, GUIs graphical user interfaces and other interfaces that, that are available. Uh, they're, they're provided
0: by vendors and, of course, by IBM with things like ZSecure. So you're mentioning that uh, beyond just telling people yes or no, you can get in here, any sort of uh, access attempt gets logged so you have a, like a, a better picture of your security footprint and what's going on. And it kind of sounds similar to what uh, Anthony was talking about the other day, Anthony Sophia with SMF, how it's just constantly writing out what it's doing, good, bad, or indifferent, mm-hmm. just so you can always – Roll back and say this is, this is what was happening. Does does what uh, SAF and security and you know everything else, does what that uh, put, puts out there play into SMF at all and if so, how? Uh, the simple answer to that is yes, yes, yes and wait for
2: it, yes. <laughs> so so our, our, the place in which we store our access or record our access decisions is SMF. RACF, RACF writes three records, 80s, 81s and 83s. Nobody really cares about the details. But fundamentally, you know, SMF is a centralized recorder of things that have gone on. It is the natural place for RACF to place its security event information. So, yes, we absolutely use SMF. We get to leverage all the things, all the good things that Anthony talked about yesterday. Use of logger, for example, the ability to have separate log streams per type of record, the ability to have signed log streams so that they're tamper evident. These are all good things. And what I love about them is they cost RACF nothing to implement. (laughs) Right, Anthony, his team did all of the heavy lifting on that. Now, but you did say something a few moments ago that I, I do want to just uh, point out is that we don't, we don't log every activity. The installation, just as they have a security policy, an important part of that policy is going to be their logging policy. Right. You have tremendous abilities to log things in ZOS. You may not want to log every time somebody does a change directory. Right. Right. So there's you, – you might choose that. Now, I'm really not that concerned about that particular piece of information. There are some things we will always log. There are very few things we will never log. And then everything else that's in there is really up to the installation because those logging requirements are going to be very application-specific. Me opening a data set for read may not be that exciting unless that data set is a system configuration data set, in which case, yeah, we do want to know that he read it. (laughs) Me opening one of my personal data sets and making a change to it may not be very interesting, But if I'm changing a system configuration or a log data set, yeah, I definitely want that recorded. So there are great options available in tailoring that logging policy
0: to specifically what the installation needs. And you mentioned SMF and exciting. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Two
1: things you don't normally hear together.
0: (laughs) There was a comment
2: in Anthony's podcast that writing an SMF formatter is not necessarily the most exciting thing. Uh, I I disagree with that. I have written – an SMF formatter. It's actually shipped with the RACF product. It's the SMF unload utility. And it's exciting and interesting for two reasons. The first one is a great sense of pride when you actually uh, (laughs) figure out how all the records are laid out, all the ones I cared about in my particular one. It's like working on a puzzle. When you put that last piece in, it feels really good. And the second and far more important reason is when you look at these records, you get incredible insights into how the system is operating. You get incredible insights into what questions the resource managers are asking. Who are your resource managers? Who are your users? And I know a lot of clients who do amazing analysis with these SMF records that have been uh, translated into a more consumable uh, fashion. Some of them will consume them by putting them in DB2. I've heard of folks putting them in a – on a Windows box and doing analysis there. I know a lot of clients who simply use something as simple as the sort product that we have on our platform, something called DF sort, has a little reporting package in it called Ice Tool. You can do amazing analysis with just the simplest set of tools when the data is available in a consumable manner. So, for that reason, SMF formatters can be exciting. Or, or I'm too much of a geek.
0: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm halfway convinced, but I'm still going to take your word for it. Okay. <laughs>
1: I want to talk about – I'm trying to remember the the fact that I can secure components of a record without without having to hide the entire record. I'm trying to remember what that was called uh, because that's, I
2: – That's not a native – so that's not what I'll call a core ZOS thing. That sounds like a DB2 um, –
1: yeah, DB two makes use of the security facility to do it. I'm trying to remember what that. That's
0: actually a is. pretty good question because in, in something like Unix, security is largely file access, or, you know, file system based. Right. How and do you extend something that's core of the, of the operating system to a product that you've installed? It, it's actually think about the
2: model. Does this person have access to this resource? In some respects, in some respects, the security manager really doesn't care what the thing is. It's just a named entity. It could be a column in a DB2 table, as an example. So that DB2 table sits in a vSAM data set. DB2 has the ability to open that vSAM data set. Life is good. And then when a user tries to touch a particular column in a particular table, it calls SAF, the resource manager, RACF, saying, does Fred have access to this named resource with the named resource is the table name, dot column name, dot whatever else it might be? So that's the way that you can implement those kinds of protections.
1: And that's really important in things like uh, I really want the doctor to look at all the stuff uh, relating to me, but he doesn't necessarily need to see my social security number. Or, you know, there, there could be the insurance company needs to see components, but doesn't really need to see um, what procedures I've had or something, right? So, so there's, there's all this um, – the capability, that fine-grained capability is, is really what's to me a value – here is that I can I can do this at a level that you don't normally do um, either in – not just in the operating system but the product set that sits on top.
2: And what's – what the basis of that is this concept of the authorization checks are against named entities where the application determines – or the resource manager should say determines what that named entity is. And that's what allows us to protect DB2 tables or IMS objects of one type, kicks transactions, whatever it might be.
1: And one of the things that um, we, we should underline here, at least in my my mind, is that I can literally take that work off of the application's shoulders, right? So the application isn't doing those checks. Um, the application runs and will get back a return if if they're not authorized.
2: One, one could argue that application should never be in the security business, that it really should be the... the uh, platform upon which the application is running. That's usually a database manager, transact, whatever it might be. That's really where you want to have those access control points and logging points.
1: Yeah, because programmers will forget that because that's not their job, right? Right. A programmer's job is to get function out quickly, Mm -hmm. right? And let's face it, security gets in the way of getting things out quickly if you're trying to be secure. What was it that uh, Carl Parris said – oh, a – Old performance guy. Uh, Life is too short to worry about security, I think was his
2: his comment.
1: (laughs) I I knew you'd love that comment. That's what I brought up. The
2: alternative, uh, there was a gentleman who was a Unix security expert who was once asked, what does it take to make a secured system? And his answer was, turn it off. Then unplug it. Then remove it from where it is, encase it in concrete. And take it 100 miles offshore and sink it at the deepest part of the ocean. (laughs) Then put a, a patrol around it with orders to shoot to kill. And then he paused and said, and even then, I'm not convinced. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the point here is that there is no such thing as absolute security, a point made a little bit earlier. Uh, there is no such thing as absolute security or we could say another way, absolute security has an infinite cost. The art of security is finding the right point on that price performance curve for the value of security versus the cost of implementing security. Right? You don't build a gold fence to protect a tin cup, is an old saying.
1: You, you kind of set yourself up for this next question then. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so what makes uh, mainframe security cheaper than doing it, say, in distributed environments?
2: Uh, you use the word there that I think explains it, distributed. If you are replicating your security issues across 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000 systems, if you are replicating the cost of maintaining software and fixes. It's very important. You know, all software is not perfect. You need to have those fixes replicated as quickly as possible. Which would you rather have to do? Manage 10,000 or manage one? That's a very key component of the, the mainframe advantage.
1: Well, that's a, <clears throat> you, you hit something that I, I, I think is really important about software being uh, imperfect, right? So I always say hardware eventually fails, software eventually works, <laughs> well said. So uh, one last question because this, this has been awesome. Yeah. Uh, uh, what time are you – no. <laughs> <laughs> what,
2: what time is breakfast being served?
1: <laughs> We're seeing more and more new people kind of start learning about the mainframe. What are the two or three points you would want somebody who's just starting out and having to deal with this whole F thing? What, what would you tell them? To do? Oh,
2: that's a great question. Uh, we have a lot of new folks who've come into the RACF organization in the last two or three years. And it's absolutely exciting because uh, – for lots of different reasons. Uh, the first one is they're a little – what's the word I want? Skeptical? Mm-hmm. Right? They're a little – I don't want to say paranoid. That's got some bad connotations. But they're always asking the question why. So if you're entering pretty much any area but the security area in particular, the question you want to ask is why? Why are we doing things this way? A lot of times the answer you might hear is because it works. From a security perspective, works may not have the same set of connotations (laughs) that it does in perhaps the area of availability. So understand the underpinnings of the infrastructure, understanding why things are architected the way they are and look for silly mistakes. Right. It's kind of like my kids, uh, when they were when they were growing up. I taught them what I'll call basic life hacking, and these are things like when you go to McDonald's, right, and the the um, let's see, Mc, uh, McNuggets. They come in a four pack and they come in a six pack. Right? Oh, I guess we're training them for something else, <laughs> <laughs> right? Every once in a while, you would see that the six-pack was uh, 2 dollars but the four-pack was $0.99. Oh, which would you rather get? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> right? It's looking for those inconsistencies that there are, and there are always inconsistencies because of optimizations that people attempt to make. That would be my, my, my first rule. The second thing is embrace security. Learn as much as you, about it as you can. Because even outside of the area in which you'll be working, mainframe security or security in general, uh, we live in an incredibly connected world. And that, that element of suspicion uh, means that when somebody approaches you with something that is too good to be true, you might take a step back and not, might not fall into something that somebody else might will. But as I say that, also be aware that I am convinced that any one of us, no matter how good you are at security – you could fall victim to a really good social engineering attack. It's simply a matter of how much work do they have to invest to convince you that you need to do something. But, but all of us, I think, would fall into that. So just those, those are two things. Right? Be aware of your of – your, of your, you know, don't, don't think you're infallible just because you do security. Learn as much as you can about security uh, and have fun. Goodness knows I have. Even the last 40 minutes. Sir. Even the last
0: 40 minutes. <laughs> Which were th- wonderful. <laughs>
1: Well, great. I, I really appreciate you uh, spending 40 minutes of your time with us today.
0: But who's counting? <laughs> but really, who's counting?
1: It feels a lot longer to me, but, you know, <laughs> wonder why. But thank you. Uh, what's his name?
0: Nelson.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So why is it that we get last names and you guys don't? <laughs> Just ask <it>. him. <laughs> It's plausible deniability. Yeah, that's what
0: <laughs> Well, we, we, we were originally going to call the, the show The Cobalt Report. I like that. <laughs>
1: and that uh, we were going to be bus and tag.
0: Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but we decided to go uh, terminal talk after the uh, equally um, popular Jeff and Frank in the Detroit Metro Airport tunnel series.
1: Yeah, we had uh, tunnel talk then. so oh, it's kind very of very good. Yeah.
0: What about yeah. That? All about the alliteration.
1: Mm-hmm. Because that's as close to humor as we can get.
0: <laughs> Alliteration and puns is, is all we have.
1: Again, thank you very much for, for spending the time with us. We really appreciate the insight.
0: My pleasure. It was fun. Wow, what a what a great interview. I, I learned I learned a lot on that. That's cool. Yeah, kind of lost track of time though. Um, Frank, do you know what do you know what time it is? It's uh two wrong. It's time for PowerPoint Counterpoint.
1: PowerPoint
0: Counterpoint on PowerPoint Counterpoint this week, um, I just want to do a, a public service announcement just just get it out there. This is something that I've kind of learned uh, over the past uh, year or so and you know it's something that I think a lot of people would benefit from knowing and that's that HDMI cables exist and they're better than VGA, and you should be using them if you can. I'm just putting it out there cuz I've seen some people go to great lengths to avoid using HDMI. Uh, and, and it's I guess it's a, it's a learned behavior if you've spent the last however many years associating blue, this is the this is the blue cable. This is my PowerPoint cable. <laughs> if I'm doing PowerPoint, this is the cable that I use. And they they have a brand new MacBook and they they bought a dongle or they got somebody to buy them a dongle. I pay
1: for that dongle. I, I want to use
0: paid, it. It's an expensive <laughs> dongle. I need a dongle. I, I like saying the word dongle. I need the dongle so that I can plug into the PowerPoint cable so that I can give my presentation. And what's really funny is that dongle is like $25. An HDMI cable, as long as you're not going like to Best Buy in in, uh, in the Westchester Mall, is like $8 and has many more uses. So just use the HDMI. It's better.
1: And if you're going to stand up and present yeah. to a group of people as a technologist and can't actually – accurately operate the equipment, it really, it really detracts from any message that I know technically what I'm doing.
0: It takes away from any sort of legitimacy you might have had. Right.
1: You, you blew it when you couldn't even make the projector
0: work. I feel better. How about you?
1: I, I feel it's a cathartic thing.
0: I'm saying that uh, also being the person that deleted a podcast because I didn't know (laughs) what I was doing. But look at all these cables. That wasn't you.
1: That wasn't you. That was the tech. I blamed it on the technology. Yeah, it was the tech.
0: All right. And that was PowerPoint Counterpoint. And that brings this episode to a close.
1: We want to thank Mark Nelson for uh, spending the time with us to yeah, really tie that, all that security stuff together.
0: Yeah. I, I learned a lot and uh, I think I love the way he put some of that stuff. We're going to have a lot of highlights, I think. Yeah. Yep. Uh, this has been terminal talk with Jeff and Frank. If you want to contact us, contact at terminal We're also on the Twitter at terminal Reach out to us with any suggestions for uh, topics or guests we, uh, we'd love to hear it all.
1: Now to old man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at TerminalTalk.net. That's contact at TerminalTalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence signing off.